Welcome to Life as a Mother, the podcast. My name is Nemo, and my hope is to leave you inspired, encouraged, supported, and sometimes with a bit of laughter as I share my own journey and pay my homage to motherhood. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6, Voices of Advocacy. Now, for this episode, I have a special guest, Rhonda Gordon. She is the founder of Healthy Birth Choices and also a teacher. Welcome, Rhonda. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Nimu. Such a pleasure. Please tell us a bit about the Healthy Birth Choices. I'm sure our listeners would love to know what that's about. Well, Healthy Birth Choices is a prenatal education program that focuses on normality in birth. And really, my goal is to work with couples to help them prepare themselves for the exciting adventure of birth with a slight slant towards being informed consumers and making good choices and increasing the chance that they'll have an uncomplicated birth. And then another big part of it is involving the partner. I'm a big fan of the partner coached birth. And so we spend a lot of time preparing the coach to be an active participant in the process so that it's a team event, not just a mom's event. Exactly. I know for Tiki and I, we really appreciate it all the content and the information. At first, I know when I registered us for the class, TK was like, what is this about? But once we started attending, you also got the benefits of it. And it was such an amazing and eye-opening experience for us. So thank you so much, Rhonda. You're welcome. Thank you. Now to jump right into it, I have a few questions here on advocacy. And the first one I wanted to kick us off with is, are elective cesareans a right? Well, I personally believe that all women, all people for that matter, have the right to personal autonomy. So to answer the question correctly, it would be, yes, it is a woman's right. Only you can decide what is right for you. Now, having said that, I have a strong belief that when it comes to cesarean sections, we should probably be looking at the why behind it. And I think that there should be some medical necessity attached to it because haphazardly having a cesarean just for the sake of want or convenience or because I want my baby to be born on a particular due date, I think can be problematic in a sense that people don't necessarily think of the aftermath of it. It's major abdominal surgery and that can come with implications. So there are many, many, many reasons to have a cesarean section for, you know, maternal well-being and fetal well-being. And, you know, I could list uh, many reasons why we should be doing cesarean sections, but to just choose one for convenience, that personally, you know, I'm challenged by that. But that's just my opinion. When that's fair, I remember even when we took the class, I remember watching a video about the cesarean procedure and I was so shocked, like seeing them take out the body parts and all that went with it for me was very scary to see. And then I ended up getting a cesarean section myself. And I do know that the healing takes quite a bit of time. So it's one thing that someone should have to think through really well before jumping to that conclusion. Yes, for sure. And I think that, you know, thank God we have cesarean section, right? I mean, mm-hmm important to acknowledge that. But this idea that, you know, people can just sort of say, that's what I want, because I'm afraid of birth, or I don't, you know, want to experience crowning, or, you know, I don't want it to ruin my lady parts, or whatever it might be. I think we really have to think through and make an informed decision about that and talk about the aftermath of it and the potential risks to it. Right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, informed decision. I like how you put that. I know in one of the studies, it was saying like countries like in Brazil or whatever, they always tend to choose the CS route just because of aesthetics. So I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, different places around the world, Nemo, have a very different take on it. And Mm -hmm. most cesareans in Canada, I think today are coming with some kind of belief that there's a medical reason for it. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, you've got a baby in distress, you've got placental previa, you've got transverse lie or maybe a a footling breech baby or a woman who has toxemia or maybe somebody who has trauma. They're a survivor of sexual abuse or whatnot. And so they make that choice. And again, these are all very valid reasons. And in Canada, it's about a 
33% cesarean section rate. But you are right. In other parts of the world, some have much higher rates than that, like 50 mm. plus or even 75% plus cesarean section rate. And then you've got other parts of the world, like the Scandinavian countries that have an extremely low cesarean rate of about 10%. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's fascinating, right? So it's part of the culture too. It's part of the culture and how our medical professionals are trained and what we perceive as dangerous and risky and all of that. Like it's a very complex question. It's a very complex situation and it's very personal because every situation is unique. Eh? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, every decision is unique too. So a lot of thought and <laughs> consideration goes into this for sure. Now, yeah. As far as epidurals, can I, for example, overrule my doctor if they refuse to administer an epidural? Well, my first question would be, why would a doctor refuse an epidural? And I say that really genuinely because in, I'll speak of Calgary, because I've been doing this for over 20 years in Calgary. I've spent a lot of time in hospitals with people having babies, and Mm -hmm. it's very, very rare for a woman not to get an epidural if she wants one. I mean, epidural is a very real common part of birth in Canada, in North America, and it's almost commonplace. So when you say if a doctor refuses it, what makes you think a doctor would? Like, do you have a, an example of? I think this question came about from one of the listeners who is in an African country, and they said that they heard a story once where a situation, the girl needed an epidural and the doctor would not give it to her. They kept um, insisting that she should just try harder and harder. I see. Um, okay. So what comes to my mind right there is, as you give that background is that, yeah, there is a right time and a wrong time for an epidural. And what that means is depending on where you are in the process of labor. So if our <laughs> listeners understand the progression of labor, we go from zero centimeters dilated to full dilation. And there's a right time to have an epidural. And having an epidural really, really late in the game, like when a woman is approaching 10 centimeters, isn't always best for her because it takes time to give an epidural. And then once the epidural is in place, a mom does not have sensation for quite a period of time or they keep popping it up for hours and hours. So the idea for some caregivers is that they want women to have a sensation connection with their uterus when pushing arrives, because when you can feel what's happening in your uterus and you can feel contractions, you will push more effectively rather right. than having that sensation completely taken away. So it could be something to do with that. And that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. The timing is important. I remember you hearing that as well in the class. If you're almost 10 centimeters dilated, it's almost quite risky to try and administer that. Well, it is because you have to be perfectly still. You, you mm-hmm. can't right? And it's hard because your contractions at that point in time are very close together, very strong, overwhelming. Some women are in transition and they're shaking. And so you're right. It not only increases the risk of getting it done right, but again, it's about to take away the sensation, which actually you want in pushing, right? You may not want to feel all your contractions when you're in labor for 10 or 20 hours, but when it comes to pushing, we know, you know, when you look at scientific evidence, it is best to be connected and we have better outcomes, less obstetrical intervention, you know, like forceps and vacuums and things when we can feel and when we can move and get into better positions and use gravity and so on. But I will say this though, Nemo, it's important to recognize that if you have a disagreement with your doctor about something, You always, always have a choice, I think, to a second opinion, right? So if if a gal is asking that question is saying, my doctor is refusing to give me one and I'm three centimeters dilated and struggling and have an overwhelming urge to push and they're telling me not to push, then there's always a place for a second opinion. Yeah, yeah. And that's a good point that you brought up because I think in the moment you don't even think of that. (laughs) You're in so much distress and There's so many things going on at the same time, but like you said, with your advocate being your partner or another person, it's a good reminder for them to bring up the second opinion as an option if someone is in a tough situation. Yes. I just had another thought and that was, you know, most of us, even those of us trying to attempt a completely natural birth, I will say, honestly, most people do get to that eight, nine centimeter point. And even when it's not what we want, many of us are asking at that point in time, I think I'd like an epidural now, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not that you really want an epidural, it's just that you're tired of what you're feeling and it's overwhelming and the fatigue is setting in and you can't imagine going Mm -hmm. on. Many people have almost forgotten that they're even having a baby. You're so caught up in the, oh my gosh, another contraction is coming, right? So Mm -hmm. ask for an epidural 
and needing an epidural are two different things. Yeah. So that's another conversation maybe, but sometimes we ask and it's not necessarily what we want or what we need. But so sometimes I think doctors are helping us make good choices based on where we are in birth and and where they know we're going in the next little while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up. What happens, would you say, if the nurses treat the patient badly? Ooh, well, you know, there's always a charge nurse. I mean, I'm speaking from what I know here in, you know, Alberta hospitals in North America. I mean, every maternity ward will have what's called a charge nurse, somebody who is not assigned to rooms, but somebody who is overlooking all of the nurses doing their jobs. And, you know, I've seen this in my own experience, not my personal experience, but my experience with other couples where there has been conflict or there has been personality challenges, or there has been a very, very strong difference in philosophy. And people have had to politely say, could we please speak to the charge nurse and have a conversation? Because the Public Health Agency of Canada states that when we're having a child, when we're bringing a baby into the world, it is our right and our responsibility to be involved in the decision making. And so if we feel like we're asking for something and we're not being heard, or if we feel like something is being pushed on us that we don't want, again, that is the sort of process, you know, of of dealing with a dilemma like that is speaking with a charge nurse. And usually that can be taken care of. And sometimes it's a conversation. Sometimes it's changing out the nurse because I sort of feel this way, Nimu, if there's a nurse that doesn't like my philosophy, I'm probably not going to connect with her and she'd probably be happier in a different birth anyway. Do you know what I mean? And there may be some other nurse sitting at the nursing station who's dying to be involved in a more simplified birth. And right. would love, love to see something different happening before their eyes. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I know what you mean. And I think too, it's important that people remember to be kind and respectful, no matter the situation. I do remember you sharing um, in our class that when you get to the hospital, just remember to be respectful. If someone angers you, just try and bring it up in a respectful manner. And that could also help reduce the friction in relationships that are not so positive. You know, it's so true. And I'm glad you brought that up because I do think, you know, like when I teach class, I speak about that as you remember, good for you two years ago. And you remember that we teach people about, it's not us against them. It's about us working as a team to achieve the best outcome for mothers and families and babies, right? And so it is true. When you walk into a hospital, even if you don't want to be there, or let's say you're afraid of hospitals or your home birth went awry and now you're going to a hospital and you're upset about that, you're right. You can't take that out on them. It's important Mm -hmm. to be respectful and kind and compassionate. And I'll tell you, it takes you so far rather than coming in there and being resistant and angry. I mean, that will get you absolutely nowhere. So a little love and consideration and compassion can go a very long way when it comes to this and can change the dynamic between people and their nurse. And so I'm glad you brought that up. The respectful relationship is powerful and you got to work together. And again, it's something that takes a little bit of thought and practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's about mutual respect in both directions. And I guess if it doesn't happen, then you can, you know, like I said, speak to a charge nurse and you go in there with the right attitude and know that uh, you may not agree on everything and that's okay. But being respectful is key. Yeah. Yeah. And you put it so beautifully. Thank you for sharing that part. Now, I think the next question is a perfect segue to what we were speaking to before about what happens if a person doesn't agree with the doctor and the hospital's decision. Outside of having a second opinion, is there more one can do? Well, I will say this. I mean, if you would disagree with a doctor's recommendation, you have the right to say so. I mean, people sometimes forget when we're having babies in hospitals that we are our own voice, you know, and our culture as a Canadian, I mean, we've been raised to believe that the medical profession is put up on the pedestal and you don't question that. I think that when it comes to birth, we have to remember that we are not sick. We are not diseased. We do not need to be saved from this experience. And so it is your birth, it is your body. And therefore, every decision should be made with your consultation as part of that journey. Medical recommendations can be made. And I think that's important that they are. However, in the end, informed consent has to be given. And Nimu, how can you give informed consent if you have no idea what they're talking about, which is why I'll put in a big plug for getting educated. Right. 
And I think you're right to say that the medical profession is put on some sort of pedestal because it's a very contentious issue. Like, do I question what they're saying? Do I not? I mean, they went to school for it. What do I know? So a lot of people feel hesitant to bring up their concerns. But like you said, it is important for people to agree to whatever is being done, not just agree blindly, but to understand that what is happening to their bodies and make an informed decision. Yes, because the biggest thing is, Nimu, we have to live with our experience. And when I say we, I mean the person going through that. So you as a mother need to know what's happening, understand what's happening. And I believe agree to what's happening because you are the one with the experience and the choices that you make are going to impact your life. And you are the one that leaves the hospital and takes that home with you. Like, think about it like a little backpack, you know, you take your experiences with you, good or bad. So that's why it's not the doctor or the nurse that takes your experience home with them. So that's why we need to be part of the conversation because it's happening to us and we live with the implications of those experiences. And again, I'll say on the good side and then on the bad side also. So it kind of sticks with you for life, right? So we have to be involved because who can make choices for us? that are best for us, you know, not a complete stranger necessarily. I mean, unless it's a medical crisis, that's a whole nother story. But in terms of little decisions here and there that can impact us emotionally and can really change the trajectory of our birth, we got to be involved in that, I believe. Yeah, I 100% agree with you there. And I hope this provides some sort of reassurance to the listeners that It is important for them to know, understand, and agree with whatever decision that is happening. Because like you said, you live with your experience. So, Yes. And it's bigger than people think. Mm -hmm. Bigger than people think, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. And so how do you advocate for yourself in the delivery room? All right. Well, that is a fabulous question because advocating comes with a little work. It's kind of like you say, you can't go blindly into birth because... If you're having conversations and you're making decisions, it's got to be based in like some background knowledge. So I really believe that we can all advocate for ourselves by asking good questions. And once information is given to you, then asking for time to try and figure out what is right for you. And in order to do so, though, you have to be informed before labor hits. It's very difficult to make informed choices when you're learning information in labor or in a challenging situation for the first time. Like if you have no clue what an induction is and someone's saying, we need to induce you, that is the wrong time to be learning about that process. It's a complicated process and you need to know about it in advance. So I really believe in this thing called the BRAIN acronym. It's something that, remember, you would have learned in class. I recommend that people use this when making a decision either in pregnancy or in labor. The BRAIN is an acronym for the following things. The B stands for benefit. So it's like asking the question to the caregiver, what are the benefits to what you're recommending? So for example, if we were talking about induction, the question would be, what are the benefits to the induction for me having an induction versus waiting? Mm -hmm. The R stands for risks. What are the risks to what you're recommending? The A stands for alternatives. And I love this one. What are the alternatives? What I've learned in the birthing world is that if you don't ask, you're often not given all of the choices that exist. So you have to ask for what you want. And guess what? Things are usually then offered. But if you don't ask, they are not. It's kind of a weird thing. So if we learn as consumers to ask, what are the alternatives? Then that will come out in conversation. The I in brain stands for instinct. What is my instinct telling me? What is my partner's instinct telling he or she? Right? And then as a couple, we can talk about What does this mean for us? What is our instinct saying? Should we do that? Should we not do that? If our instinct is saying no, why is it saying no? And sometimes the reason that your instinct is saying no is because you know that it's not necessary medically and you're having an internal struggle. And then the N stands for nothing. What happens if we do nothing? So the brain is benefit, risk, alternative, instinct, and nothing. And that gives us a platform in which to ask really good questions that can help us advocate for ourselves and make good choices. And that acronym is such a good one. I remember too, in my own birthing experience, that came in super handy because my daughter was 11 days late. So 
when the injection was done, I kind of understood why it needed to be done. And even before we went the CS route, there were lots of options that were given to me before we finally did the emergency C-section. And I was so thankful that I had attended your class because otherwise I'd just be making decisions quickly and without knowing anything, right? Exactly. And Nimu, knowing that you had that experience of, you know, you had a vision of a particular birth, you went 11 days overdue. I mean, that's tough in this day and age. It's very tough to carry that long without a lot of pressure to be induced. So you push the envelope there, you get to the 11th hour, we're going to call it, and then you had to make choices, right? I love you say that what you learned in class helped you to navigate through the system and make choices and ask questions and do what needed to be done out of love and protection for your baby, right? And in the end, it's not always the path we want to take, but sometimes the path chooses us. And what I hope always for my couples is that in the end, you get to the point where even in your situation where, you know, you face induction and then you eventually end up in an emergency C-section, you can come out the other side and make sense of it and say, I understand what happened. And guess what? I still feel empowered by my birth because people don't think those two things can go together. People don't think that you can have a challenging birth experience and it still be rewarding or positive or empowering. And when I listen to you, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like because you were involved, you still feel like that was, you know, a positive, you know, beautiful experience, even though it wasn't necessarily the plan. Yeah, I would have to agree. And I mean, the hospital was so good with giving us time with each um, option they gave us. They gave us a few minutes to discuss it, think it over. Like it was never rushed. So for that reason, I felt very positive with the outcome. Good. That's good. Mm -hmm. And do you think that advocating for yourself can sometimes be seen as being pushy? (laughs) Well, Yes, I do. I do. And where that comes from, though, is ignorance. And I don't mean ignorance on our our part. I mean, ignorance on other people's part. Sometimes highly educated people, like when we're talking about the medical profession here, because we're focusing on birth, sometimes they're not sure how to handle people who are educated consumers. And so when we come in there with a clear plan and with certain desires and with clear expectations, it's not always received with a warm welcome, because sometimes they perceive us as being challenging or difficult, but that's where the whole respect and being polite thing comes in. So you can come in there being educated and as long as you're polite, you will be listened to and you will be respected. And it's incredible how many options will suddenly open up. So they do sometimes see us as pushy, but I also think that medical personnel appreciate people who have taken the time to invest in themselves. And kind of like you experienced, When we ask for time, when we ask for alternatives, when we say, thank you for those options, but I think I'm going to pass, guess what happens in most cases? It's completely respected. And they're like, well, yeah, if you want to wait for another three hours, that's fine. So again, it's really interesting because I do think we are made to feel like it's not a positive thing to be pushy and to advocate for ourselves, but I do think that it is respected. And it's not easy to do because it's uncomfortable, right? It's easy. Yeah, it's easier just to say you do what you need to do to a doctor. But no, we need to stand up for what's important to us and get involved. And the more informed we are about birth and how to navigate the process, the more likely you're going to feel involved and engaged and respected and empowered. And I think that in the big scheme of things, doctors do appreciate it. Although they may not say it, I think they do appreciate educated people. That's a fair point. And now to add on to that, like, do you think that Mamas who are educated about how to advocate for themselves during birth are more likely to have a positive birth experience, would you say? Oh, guarantee. I guarantee it. I have met so many people over the last two decades who come out of their birth and literally are shell-shocked. Their heads are spinning. They're traumatized. They don't know which way is up. They have no idea what happened and why. And my heart breaks for them because I don't think we should ever be coming out of birth suffering from... PTSD. And actually is a real thing now, Mimu. It's a real thing. And you know, they're talking about even men or partners being traumatized to the point of having PTSD by seeing birth, which is horrible, in my opinion. That comes from people not being aware, people trying to wing birth and birth should not be wung. (laughs) You know, it's the kind of thing that we need to go in there with intention and with a plan. And so when you ask the question, is being educated about how to advocate, 
Does it make for a more positive birth? I know it does because I see it all the time. I see the difference between people who are horrified by their birth versus our couples, where even when birth does not go as planned, I rarely see people who will speak about it negatively or are horrified by the experience. And the reason why is because they knew what was happening to them every step of the way. So I think it's really important to recognize that education leads to better outcomes and it also leads to less difficulty in the aftermath when you're trying to figure out what was that all about? What was my birth? You know, you need to make sense of your birth. It's a big experience. It definitely is. And, and that makes a lot of sense, Rhonda. I find it very heartbreaking that people would be so traumatized and fearful after the birth experience just because of not knowing why things ended up the way they did, right? Yes, exactly. And it's hard to make sense of it. And most people don't try and find out the answers, Nemo. They feel like it's too late at that point in time. So some of my couples who have difficulty after their birth will sit down and we'll talk about what exactly happened. And they will often say things like, I need to figure out where things went wrong. And I'll often say, whoa, whoa, stop. I don't know that things went wrong. You know, things went different than you had initially planned, but I don't think that things necessarily went wrong. Birth is unpredictable. That we know. Yeah. (laughs) Even when you do everything right, birth is unpredictable and can go very differently. And so I think that people need to acknowledge that and you need to be okay with that and you need to be somewhat flexible. But I think it's important to be able to make sense of your birth because like I said, every time you look at your child, you're reminded of your experience. So we want to make sure that that is done in a way where things are understood. And so people can, like, if it didn't go well, people can deal with it and have some closure to it and move on rather than carrying that with them their entire life, because it can have really serious negative implications on our relationships with our babies, on our relationships with our partners, on our own personal relationship with ourselves as women. We can think that our bodies failed us. We can look for blame and shame and all of that kind of stuff. And none of that has to happen because if we can make sense of what happened, it's healing. Yes. Very healing. And I think we did an exercise in your class as well, where we had to write a birth story and write all these things that you would want. And then after writing it, tearing it up and knowing that, you know what, just because you want things to go a certain way doesn't mean they will go that way necessarily. So you have to be open to know that your birth experience could be different, right? That's right. And what's interesting is some people will approach it and say, well, if you can't control it, then why bother trying to control it? And I disagree with that. I think that you need to prepare for it, be as supported as you can, be as educated as you can, learn techniques, have like lots of stuff in your toolkit, you know, to help manage with the discomforts of labor. And then in the end, if what you need to know is you set the bar high in order to shoot for the stars, if you will. And Mm -hmm. in the event that it doesn't end up turning out that way, you need to know that flexibility is a key aspect to birth as well. You've got to be flexible and you've got to know that sometimes babies have different plans than we have. But again, to not plan for it because you think I don't want to be disappointed is absolutely the wrong approach because if you don't plan for good things, it doesn't usually happen by accident, Nemo. Like a normal, exciting, empowering, natural birth does not often happen by accident. There's a lot of intention behind that and a lot of effort and a lot of work. And I don't say that to scare people. I say that because it has to be intentional. Because if you don't plan for it and you walk into a hospital to have a baby, it's likely going to be a a medicalized birth, at least in Canada. Right. The mental aspect is huge too. Wow, it sure is. Yeah. And Rhonda... What is the importance of having a support team that can advocate for you? Well, you can probably speak to that as well as I can, because you probably (laughs) remember how critical it was to have TK by your side. And he was a trained coach. Hey, it makes a huge difference. But having a support network, a partner, a doula, a friend, a family member who is who is educated and who knows what you're trying to achieve is critical in birth. I think that most women and this is you know, most people don't think about this, but many of us hit a point in labor where we become nonverbal, where we literally cannot form words. We're so like in our zone and doing our thing. And we have difficulty with clarity of thought. 
And it's in those moments where it's important to have somebody who knows what our vision is, know what our values are, know what our birth wishes are, so they can advocate for us when we can't advocate for ourselves. You know, I remember in my two births, my husband at times having to be my voice. And the only reason he could be my voice was because we had talked about things. We had done a class together. He knew what mattered to me. And so it was beautiful when I couldn't speak that I could just nudge him. And I knew that he would advocate for me in a way that I couldn't advocate for myself in those moments. Same thing with, you know, we become nonverbal. It's sort of like advocating for an unborn child, right? Your baby can't speak for itself. So Mm -hmm. Like if a woman has a baby and your baby has to go to the NICU, to the NICU, then partners should go with the baby because that baby can't speak for itself. But as the father or the parent to that child, that person can be an advocate for that child and say what they are willing to see happen or what they're not willing to see happen. And the same thing happens to a woman in labor where we hit that wall and we hit that point and it's like, we need an advocate when we lose sight of advocating for ourselves, or we literally are unable to speak. Hmm. And I think you're right, because for me as well, TK was a huge help on that front. At some point, he became my voice too, because you're right, um, you lack clarity at some point down the road as you go through the birth experience. And when I speak to some people, they say, oh, I don't see the benefit of taking a class. We're just going to go and just wing it. Like, it's a waste of time. But for me, I think it's a big benefit to have both partners or someone supporting the mother as she goes through the birthing experience. For sure. I don't think birth was ever intended for women to do alone. And it's too much to ask. We put so much burden on them In, in our general society. We put so much burden on the mom to, you know, we're carrying the baby, we're growing the baby, we're, you know, eating for that baby, we're doing that 10 months of hard work. And even that part, we shouldn't be walking alone, but we do tend to take on the majority of that responsibility, right? When it comes to labor and birth, a partner can be in there. I'm talking like 50%. So doing 50% of the work and yes, women are still in the labor process. But as you know, from personal experience, we can give up a lot of our stuff, if you will, in labor And our partner can carry the load of that, the responsibility of that so that we don't have to. And then something beautiful happens as a couple when we do this work together, you know, and I say it in class quite a bit that a lot of time people come to the end of birth and a partner will look at a woman that just gave birth to a baby and say, I have never loved or respected you as much as I do in this moment right now. I cannot believe what you just did bringing our baby into the world. And then a woman in labor will say the same thing about her partner often, you know, like I know for certainty. I couldn't have done that without you. So there's this beautiful thing that happens when we do it together. And it's not about, it's a shared experience that then trickles over into parenthood. Like, hey, I'm going to put you on the spot, Nemo. How is parenthood with you and TK being connected and raising your daughter? Like he had a voice. He knew his voice already, right? So did it change, do you think, who he was as a father in terms of had he not been, you know, involved or educated? I think it enhanced his involvement as a father. Like he's very involved and he likes to understand and know things. So I think it's been a a very, very, very great experience. I have no complaints. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. I'm glad. We may parent differently, but uh, (laughs) he's definitely involved. Yeah. Yeah. That's a blessing in itself, right? Because again, I sometimes think that's why we, you know, when you have two parents, again, you get two different perspectives and they don't have to be perfectly aligned. I mean, yes, you have to come to some kind of agreement on how we're going to do things, but sometimes it's a matter of trying something suggested by someone else that you wouldn't have done because it wasn't in your mindset, right? So there's value when people unite, but also you run the risk of conflict as well. In Ooh, terms yeah. of not agreeing. <laughs> But, but that's, that's not a bad thing, right? We need to learn how to communicate and, and try different things. Mm-hmm. And I think conflict is healthy, right? It's important to have that back and forth and exhaust all options. <laughs> that's right. That's right. For sure. Within moderation, hey? Yeah, within moderation. <laughs> now, for my last question here, is an infection after birth considered negligence? And what happens if a mistake that is made negatively impacts a patient? And the reason why I put down this question is because I was talking to a family friend and her birthing experience sounded so painful, like 
So she gave birth. She had severe tearing. With that, they stitched her up. And then a couple of weeks after the stitches came undone and they tried to fix it up again. And then something happened again and she had to go to the hospital. And I was thinking, what? Like, How many things can happen? Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. I will speak to that in a moment, but I'll first say this. This is one of the reasons, Nimu, why, why I am such an advocate for optimal birth. I and mean, when I say optimal birth, what I mean by that is lower intervention birth, an empowering birth, right? And the reason why I believe in it so much is because exactly what you're speaking about there. So many of those things that happen to people often happen based on decisions that are made in their birth and the slippery slope of intervention, right? One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. So for example, a woman who gets an augmentation or an induction doesn't necessarily think, oh, this is automatically going to mean that I have an epidural, but they're not thinking about that because they're just thinking about the induction. So then the induction leads to an epidural and the epidural comes with some other things that people don't talk about, you know, like catheters and other narcotics and so on. And now I don't have a sense of feeling down there. So I lose my freedom of movement and I have to be hooked up to machines and uh, fetal monitors full time and everything changes. And because of the decisions that we make, it often leads to a lot more intervention that ever needs to happen. So when I hear you tell that story of that gal, it makes my heart break because I can see where things could have gone differently. Of course, you can't say that to a person when they come to the end of their experience and say, you know, you could have made different decisions that didn't lead to that. Like why women tear? There's a lot of reasons for it, but oftentimes it has to do with the positions that we're in, the way that we're pushing and whether or not we're connected to our perineum. Like, can we feel what's happening down there or not? And you'll remember in class how I teach a lot about that, you know, being connected with your body so you can feel what's happening so you can change what you're doing amidst that feeling, right? So you don't push as hard as you were pushing earlier when it comes to crowning, because that's where we often will tear. And I'm sorry if I'm getting too personal here, but the decisions that we make, we often make because we handed over our power to someone else and said, hey doc, take care of me in my labor. And then these things happen. And then the aftermath can be difficult like this gal that you're speaking about. And it's heartbreaking because yes, you wanna look at it like, hey, this was not normal and I wanna blame someone for it. But in fact, these are risks that exist when we walk the path. And that's why I say to you, we need to have conversations to say, what are the risks before I delve into something, right? Before I make a choice about something so that we're not necessarily running into these challenges in the aftermath. Now, going back to your original question of, is that negligence? Well, I mean, I'm no lawyer, but there are so many variables leading up to every situation that for a mother to have an infection, is that somebody's fault? Mm. It's many, many factors. It's a lot of different choices, both on the medical people's part and the laboring woman's part. And in the medical profession, it's sort of like, we're going to do what we need to do. And then we'll worry about the other stuff later. Okay. So like if a woman tears, we'll fix it up later. If a woman ends up with an infection, we'll worry about it later. My best advice to people is try to stay out of a lot of intervention and you won't end up with some of those complexities. Now, sometimes it's unavoidable. You ended up with an emergency C-section, right? You know what that looks like. That's major abdominal surgery. Nemo, you end up with the additional risk of infection when you've had that kind of trauma to the abdomen. And we know that when we have a cesarean, there's an increased chance of that, but you don't have a choice. You had to have the cesarean for valid reasons and you have to then take on the risk that goes along with that. You know what I'm saying? So it's one of those things, is somebody negligent? I mean, there is negligence that exists, no doubt about it. And how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with that by basically Stepping into a situation where you connect with the advocacy representative from the hospital, talk through the birth, see if something went wrong. And in North America now, where everybody's into litigation and stuff, you, you fear some of that happening. But we have to also take responsibility. You know, it is not just about when a birth doesn't go right. That is not that a doctor made a mistake. It's a combination of we all contributed to the journey of it. And that's why. It's so important to be informed and to have conversations in advance and to be educated in advance and to take a class. And this is not to promote myself. This is to promote every woman, every couple, I should say, to get educated about birth so that things don't accidentally happen to you 
unnecessarily because there are always risks associated with that. And I don't want people dealing with that in the post-birth. You know what I want you doing post-birth? Snuggling in bed with a brand new baby, figuring out how to breastfeed, enjoying those sensitive moments, those sensitive first days and weeks. And that's how it should be. Not back in a hospital dealing with an infection or a postpartum bleed or things that could be potentially avoided had different steps have been taken as far as birth goes. Yeah. And now that you're speaking about it, I'm remembering parts of the story too, because I think some of the placenta was left in as well. So they didn't remove the placenta too well. So then oh. that contributed to another infection. Like there was just so many things that happened. And I was, yeah. Yeah. Well, and all of that can have a, be a byproduct of the different things that are happening in our birth, the different drugs that are used, whether or not we have epidurals, like there's many factors. That's what I'm talking about that contribute to that. A piece of the placenta leave, being left behind isn't necessarily the mistake of a doctor. When your placenta pops off the wall, there can be a very tiny piece that's left behind. The doctor or the midwife is looking at the placenta. It looks complete, but if a little piece is left behind, it will contribute to postpartum infection, you will end up continuing to bleed more than you need to. And then sometimes women need to go in after the fact for a DNC or whatnot. But again, there are ways to avoid some of these things. So, you know, for example, getting a baby to the breast as soon as possible after delivery will help for the body to properly release the placenta off the uterine wall more effectively, right? Along with, you know, some people will get the Pitocin shot in their leg. Some of these things will help that uterus to release the placenta completely and properly, but it doesn't always happen. And especially when you get drugs involved in birth, there's a difference here in even these little parts of the aftermath. Third stage is affected differently in a natural birth versus a non-natural birth. And so again, being educated, people will know these things. And sometimes it's uh, avoidable and sometimes it's not. And sometimes mistakes happen in birth. When you turn birth into a medical procedure, Nimu, this is what comes as part of the package in a way. So, you know, I think people, again, they need to evaluate things. They need to understand their birth. Every human being has the right to their medical records. You can't walk into a hospital and say, can I have my birth records? You have to make an appointment to go in and sit down with a particular person or two who will go through it and explain it all to you because it's sort of written in medical shorthand. And, but yeah, things can be made sense of things can be investigated. I mean, if it's a serious mishap that has led to a maternal compromise or fetal compromise, you better believe that there's going to be investigations and things like that. But uh, a piece of your placenta being left on the wall, that actually is fairly common and happens all the time. So tricky stuff. And again, I just want people to be able to make sense of their birth. And uh, when we're involved, you can often uh, you can often know the whys behind why things are happening. And then it's easier to sort of meddle through after the fact. Hmm. Well, so much to think about for us mamas, but um, this yeah. conversation has been so informative. Like Rhonda, you have a wealth of knowledge and I'm sure the listeners are going to benefit from all this conversation and information that you've provided but now for the listeners to get to know you, I want to ask you three questions. So okay. the first one being, why is the topic of advocacy important to you? Well, because I am responsible for my choices and I have to live with the implications of those choices. And when I say I, I mean any consumer, you know, mm-hmm. we have to make the choice that is right for us knowing what the potential implications are with the decisions we make. No, no stranger should be making those choices f- about what is best for me, especially if it's not, I mean, we're, we're talking about birth here. We're not talking about a life and death situation. That's a whole different story, right? If you're talking mm-hmm. about a heart attack or something critical or a, a mother that ends up in her labor having, let's say, placental abruption, you know what, in cases like that, you just got to hand it over. But in a time where there's time to talk about it, advocacy is critical because your choices are your choices and nobody can make choices about what is right for you, Nimu. So when we advocate for what we want or need, we're getting involved in the decisions surrounding our own autonomy. And that I think is something that we need to get more comfortable with. And like we said earlier in this conversation, we tend to think that the medical profession is up on the pedestal and we cannot ask tough questions. I think the opposite. We have the responsibility to ask tough questions. Why? Because it is my body, but also because as a taxpayer, these people are working for us. I mean, we are 
being taken care of. And we should have a say in the way that we are taken care of because there are always choices. So that's where I stand on that. I think that when it comes to birth, women and their partners should be active participants in the journey because they're the ones, like I said earlier, who take the experience home with them. Mm. Yeah, and I think to to add on to that, as long as you're asking those tough questions in a respectful way, like we said, no offense should be taken, I don't think. Yes, and usually it's not. I have so many couples who come back after a hospital birth that wasn't planned. Let's say that they may have been a person planning a hospital birth with a midwife or a birth center birth with a midwife, and then something happened and they have a transfer of care. And I have so many people who come back afterwards and say, even though I had a transfer of care, my experience was wonderful and beautiful. And the doctor was so supportive and the nurses were fabulous. And I often say to them, you know why? Because you engaged in a respectful, honoring manner and you connected as a team. You made them feel part of your experience. And when you practice mutual respect, this is what happens. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yes. Respect is a huge part of it. And the way that you ask for what you want is critical. Mm. And even when you talk about the transfer of care, I'm reminded of my experience because I had to have a transfer of care as well, but it was very positive. And even my midwife got to stay up until the baby was delivered. Like we all worked together as a team, the doctors, the midwife, my husband, I was It was very good. And I'm so happy to hear that, Nemo, because that is the way of the future, you know, like in, I'm going to just speak about Canada. We have something that we're supposed to be trying to achieve, and that is called family-centered maternity care. And when you talk about what you experienced there two years ago, that's exactly what it's about, having you have a voice and then having you be supported by the people in your little fold, TK, your midwife, and then together working with the medical team to do what is best for you and your unborn child. That's family-centered maternity care. And uh, I love it. And it can be beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. And I love it too. What is the biggest takeaway from being an advocate? Mm. When we advocate for ourselves, I think we rarely ever have regret. And we gain understanding that helps us make sense of things. So, you know, if you're not involved, if you're not an advocate in your experience, it's very hard to analyze it and make sense of it, right? So that's what I believe the biggest benefit to being an advocate is just that you have no regrets later. You have understanding. You have a pathway to closure and moving forward. And I think that that's really important. I mean, walking away from any medical encounter without understanding, you know, is difficult. And it can lead to a lot of uncertainty and finger pointing and shame and blame and You know, I mean, I've even had experiences with couples who had midwives where their birth did not go well. Like they maybe had a home birth with a midwife, but where things didn't go well and they really struggled with maybe the way that they were managed or a certain something that came up and they carry that with them, you know? And so having conversations after the fact to make sense with a listening ear, somebody who's knowledgeable about this can help to even correct some of that. And and I've had the pleasure of sitting with couples and saying, well, hey, you know, that midwife did what she needed to do. Or, hey, in your situation, Nemo, your doctor doing an emergency C-section was obviously necessary for these particular reasons. And when we can't make sense of our own birth, I highly recommend that people sit down with somebody who is knowledgeable and talk about what happened so they can make sense of it. And the more involved you are, the more of an advocate you are, uh, the easier that is to do. And sometimes you don't even have to do it with somebody else after the fact, because you can figure it out on your own, right? So advocacy is really underrated and it's so important in birth. Love it. Thank you, Rhonda. And my last question here is, what are some things you have had to unlearn? That's a big question. I think if I had to put my finger on a couple of things, I would say that you cannot control every aspect of your pregnancy and labor. Okay. When I was first trained 23 years ago now down in the States to become a prenatal educator, I came back thinking that, you know, everybody could and should have a natural birth. If they were trained properly, they could and should have a natural birth. And boy, I had to unlearn that. Um, You can do everything right. You can take the best class. You can have the best support. You can have the most educated partner. You can have the most expensive doula. You can do everything right. And things may still turn out very differently. So we need to understand that we can't control everything when it comes to giving birth. There are too many factors. 
the baby being one of them, you know, baby has a plan that maybe isn't the same as ours. Yeah, so they have a mind of their own, even at that age. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We learn things about our baby's personality even before they're born, don't we? Yeah. yeah. I also think another thing that I've had to unlearn is that, and I mean this very respectfully, that the medical profession doesn't always know what is best for you. You know what is best for you. And decisions made about mothers or babies, unborn babies or newborn babies, should be made in consultation with families. So when I was growing up, I believed that the doctor was always right. You never question, you never challenge. That's just how I was raised. In my adult life, and as now a childbirth educator, I'm really passionate about the fact that, you know, we need to find our own voice. And this is not about a radical perspective of us against them. I have great respect for the medical profession, but I think we have to recognize they are people, they're human, and sometimes things can get in the way of the decision that is right for me based on someone's bias, based on somebody's state of mind, based on the fact that somebody's got to get out of the hospital as soon as possible because their shift is ending. So I believe that the medical profession does not always know what is best for you or for me, that we have to do this together. We have to embark on this journey together. That's something that I've learned throughout my years. And one more thing I think I would say, and this is maybe a good place to leave it, is women are not broken, they are strong. And what I mean by that is I did not grow up with the mindset that I have now. I believe that birth was scary. I believe that birth was a challenge. I thought when I have a baby, it's going to be, you know, somebody's going to take care of all of my discomfort and all of the challenges. And yet, you know, as I became a pregnant first time mom, that all changed for me. And I realized that women are not broken and that we are strong. We just have to find our strength and we have to move through a lot of the I'm going to say misconceptions that our society places on us and we need to find our strength because women are strong and they can do incredible things. And your body is amazing. Mm. And I love that for the ending. It's such a beautiful way of how to express women and their capabilities. I love that. Women are not broken. Women are strong. And thank you so much for Agreeing to be part of this episode, Rhonda, it was such an honor and we loved hearing your perspective and I hope all you listeners get a lot of insight from what we've shared today. So thank you again. Uh, it was my honor to be here. Thank you, Nemo, for connecting. It was wonderful to hear your voice and to all of the people listening out there, I wish you well and I wish you the best and know that you always have a cheerleader over here in Canada rooting for you. <laughs> thank you, Rhonda. And again, if you want to reach out to Rhonda, remember uh, Healthy Birth Choices. I believe there's a website you can go and see her yes. contacts. So yeah, feel free to use the resources that are available. And Rhonda is a great resource for every one of us. So thank you again, Rhonda. Thank you, Nimu. Thank you for listening to Life as a Mother, the podcast. Please share with a friend, subscribe, and leave this mama a review.